Hey, love bird. Welcome to So Good, the Good Love Company podcast. It is me, Stephanie, your host and leading love and relationship expert and educator. I am the genius behind the Good Love Company brand, and I've helped thousands of women find themselves and find love. So get cozy, grab your favorite beverage, kick back, relax. It's going to be so good. I'm living that high Hello, Lovebird. Welcome back to another episode of So Good. We talked in the last episode about the concept of good love and what it is and how it's more of a mood and it's more of a mission and it's a concept to really bring people back to the truth of they are, of who they are so that they can call in a match that magnifies that. I want to talk today about my story a little bit more in depth and a little bit more vulnerably and really bring you back to some really dark times in my life so that I can show you the extreme contrast of why this work is so important to me, why good love is just a non-negotiable, strong point of view know it forwards, backwards, side to side. It is the everything in my life. And I want to tell you why that is and where it came from. So I'm going to take you all the way back to winter 1984. My parents were together for 10 years and they never wanted to get married. But back in the day, that's what you did. So after a lot of pressure from friends and family, they decided what the hell we're going to tie the knot and we're just going to do it on a day that people are already partying so that we're not going to make it a big deal. So they decided to get married on New Year's Eve. Everyone's already in the mood to get down. I guess we'll have a wedding. We don't want to do this anyway. After that, the next logical step is to have kids, right? Well, my mom and my dad did not want to have children. They wanted to be professionals. They wanted to be a power couple. They wanted to have their own life on their own terms. So my mother made an appointment to have her tubes tied. And back in the 80s, tubal procedures were not considered reversible like they are today. So back in the 80s, doctors would give a 24 to 48 hour think about it window I was conceived in that window. So the story goes. A little bouncing baby girl was born two and a half weeks late, the end of February in 1986. Before I even took my first breath, it was cemented into my psyche that I was unwanted. I wasn't supposed to be here. My parents didn't really want a family. My parents didn't really want to do the whole happy home thing. That was already cemented into my psyche before I took my first word, before I took my first step, and before my first birthday, my parents had divorced. I grew up being very shielded from my life. In fact, I don't have any memory earlier than, say, eight, nine years old. I'll go over what that's about in a different episode as I've come to understand a little bit more about that. But for today's talk, I want to share about where this all started. 
Because I have no recollection of my early childhood and because all I've ever known was that my parents were divorced and I'm an only child, everything in my life was secret. I didn't know why my parents split up. I didn't know why I didn't have any siblings. I didn't know why nobody talked about it. All I knew was that I wasn't supposed to be here. My parents didn't really want me. My parents didn't really want to get married, and they didn't want to have a family. When you're a child, oftentimes parents think that you just don't notice anything, or you are blissfully playful, or everything is just great if you just smile at your kid and give them some goldfish crackers and put on morning cartoons. Fast forward to 15 years old, and I discover alcohol. I'm working in a restaurant. I've gotten out of my awkward 11, 12, 13-year-old stage. I had my first period. I'm getting attention from the 20-year-old line cooks. And now I have found alcohol. The first moment when I realized that I had found my thing was a Christmas party at a restaurant that I used to work at, me and a girlfriend that I am still close with to this day, and I decided to get positively hammered off white wine and choose that night to be the night that we confess our love to our coworkers at the restaurant. We rehearsed it. We had our outfits in October. We had our ride. We had our money. We were going to be the baddest 15-year-olds you had ever seen until my girlfriend got blackout hammered and wasn't allowed in the party. I, however, was. And in that moment, when I walked into that restaurant and I'm feeling so good, I have that warm wine buzz just pulsing through my bloodstream. Tonight's the night. It's happening. I am telling this guy how great I am. Guess who wasn't at the party? He was at his girlfriend's house. He didn't want me. He didn't want to be there. He didn't want to do it. Later on, it cemented into my psyche that there was something inherently unlovable about me. Nobody wanted me. They didn't want me. They weren't there. They were gone. I didn't know at the time. But little by little, the foundation of my belief system about romantic love were tied into the concept of they don't want me and they're not there. As I got a little bit older and started feeling the freedoms of not having to be under my parents' roof, I decided that I was going to go to college and show the world who I was. I then proceeded to fall madly in love with a guy who wanted nothing to do with me. Well, romantically at least. We were best friends. Best, best friends. He was everything to me, and I was convinced eventually one of these days, one of these days, he is going to walk by me, look at me with this look like it's always been you. He would then sweep me off my feet. We would finish college together. We'd get a little brownstone apartment, write hilarious, witty journals, and we would live happily ever after until he didn't show up to the dance. He wasn't there. He was with his new girlfriend, 
in her dorm room. That was the night that I got kicked out of college for overdosing on ecstasy and alcohol at the club. I had come home and my heart stopped. The resident assistants had called an ambulance and one of the guys that I purchased the ecstasy from so lovingly removed it from my pocket as so I wouldn't get charged with any crime. And all I remember was being in the ambulance and calling out this guy's name, the love of my life, who wasn't there, who was at his girlfriend's house, who wanted nothing to do with me. And all I'm doing in that moment, as the paramedics are putting electrodes on my chest and a heart monitor on, and a pulse tracker on my finger. All I'm doing is yelling, where is he? Where is he calling his name? Luckily for me, he actually showed up at the hospital and he just said, oh, Stephanie, why? I didn't know at the time, but I was just craving him. Well, love, really. I ended up continuing in school, but being removed from residence. And on the drive home, my mom just shook her head and said, Stephanie, ecstasy, really? And we didn't talk about it. Two years later was the day that I got drunk off Jack Daniels and got really angry with my mother. Really fucking angry. We were at a Christmas party. And the Christmas party happened to be on Boxing Day, December 26th. Coincidentally, the date of the guy from college that I was in love with, well, that was his birthday. So I decided that ruminating over Jack Daniels straight from the bottle was going to be a happy solution. And it worked until it didn't because all my mother had to do was look at me the wrong way, and Lord knows what possessed me. But I made a grave error that night. I decided to smash the side of a mirror with my palm, causing immediate cuts and bleeding, and the shatter of thousands of broken mirror pieces. I found the biggest one, grabbed it, charged into the living room, straight to my mom. I didn't know what I was trying to do in that moment. I wanted her to notice. I wanted her to understand that I was hurting. All she noticed was her drunk, bratty 21-year-old holding a jagged mirror piece above her head. In that moment, she told me that I had two options. I could be driven to my aunt's house to stay for the weekend to think about what I had done. Or a policeman could come and take me to the local emergency room where I could be on a 5150 mental illness hold and think about what I had done. Being the disconnected, hurt woman I was, I chose to stick it to her and the cops were called. I don't remember much about that night, but I did wake up the next day in a single-celled bed in a hospital thinking, well, that was a bad night. I need to get the hell out of here and go home. I tried to call my mom and she answered saying, you don't live here anymore and you need to figure it out. And she hung up the phone. At that time, I had been aware that my drinking was starting to get a little ridiculous 
and a little out of control, but I thought I was normal. I was 21 years old. I was in the prime of my life, or so I thought. I was doing just fine until I wasn't. And now I couldn't go home. I ended up going to a homeless shelter. I called a friend who didn't know me too, too well, so she couldn't judge me too, too much. And she drove me past my mother's house where all of my belongings were tied up in garbage bags on the porch for me to collect for myself to bring wherever I was going. We ended up finding me a room at a women's detox shelter and I spent seven days next to pregnant, addicted women, next to battered mothers, next to strung out people with nowhere to go, and me, this college-educated girl who just had a bad night, and I'm in a homeless shelter. If you've never been to a detox facility or a homeless shelter, there are oftentimes limits on how long you can be there. In this case, 10 days. So on the ninth day, I called my mom. Okay, I'm ready. I'm sorry. And she said, I don't care. That's, that's it. You crossed the line. I was officially homeless with one day left at this detox center. The counselor pulled me in and said, okay, Stephanie, this is the hard part. We need to figure out where you're going. Is there anyone you can call? I remember thinking in that moment, I wonder what my dad's doing. It's been a bit. I hadn't seen him since I left college. I hadn't seen him since I was 18, actually. I didn't even remember his phone number. But for some reason, the thought crossed my mind. So I'm sitting in the armchair in the counselor's room next to a box of Kleenex. And she said, let's start dialing. I think we tried the phone number configurations five or six times. I knew a few of the numbers. I just didn't know the order. But I think it was the sixth try where a man picked up. Hello? Hi, is this my dad? Is this my dad? Stephanie? Hi, dad. How are you? Where are you? Which proceeded to be a very uncomfortable 20-minute conversation with then me asking him, hey, is there any chance that tomorrow you can come pick me up and maybe I can stay with you and get my life on track? By the grace of God, he said, of course. Of course. What's the address? And in that moment, I realized, oh, these are one of those moments that people talk about where your life changes in an instant. The next day, my dad picked me up, loaded up my garbage bags of shit into the back of his car, And we drove the 60 clicks to Oshawa, a town north of me, about an hour and a half. I decided that in that moment, I was going to quit drinking. I was going to get my life on track. 
I was going to form this relationship with my father and it was going to be exquisite. And maybe, just maybe, I'll get the healing that I need. I stayed sober for eight months until I moved to Toronto from Oshawa, 23 years old, started a new life where I thought, you know what, I'm going to make something of myself. That was the last sentence I remember saying before a six-year alcoholic spree. I had a funny feeling a couple years later that my mom was getting sicker and sicker. And while I'd been living in Toronto, not sober, partying, meeting guys, having lots of sex, doing lots of drugs, working in bars, going downhill, there was a flash. Your mom's not doing well. You need to talk to her. I ignored it and drowned it with more alcohol, more men, more sex, more plenty of fish, more tinder, more lava life, more fucking on the first date. If I can just drink and fuck my feelings away, it'll be fine. I'm a Toronto girl. I've healed. Well, maybe. But your mom's not doing well. I made the decision in July to visit her in my hometown. She asked about how it was like living with my dad. And I said it was great until his new wife didn't want me there anymore. I told her it was great until I started drinking again. I told her it was great until I had this funny feeling that she wasn't doing so well because she wasn't. She was walking with a cane. She was a 100 pounds overweight. She looked 30 years older than she was. She had grandiose dreams that were just not feasible due to her physical condition, and she couldn't even see it. But we sat in that pub, and we had our food, and we had our beverages, and we talked about the Real Housewives, and we talked about reality TV, and she laughed, and it was beautiful, and it felt so good. It was the first time I felt good with my mom in forever. And I asked her a question in that moment. I said, whatever happened? And she looked at me funny, and she said, what do you mean? Well, I said, but... Between you and dad, whatever happened, I spent all my life angry and rejected. What happened? No one talked to me. No one told me. And she said, well, I mean, I guess you're old enough to know the truth. And she said, I went back to school when you were nine years old so that I could get my master's and eventually become a teacher so I could live out my dreams and set you up. I went back to school so that I could not feel bad anymore and I could feel good. It stuck with me and I said, okay, that makes sense. But what about my dad? What about you and my dad? And then she looked at me again, took another sip of her pint, cleared her throat and said, oh, I thought you were just talking about why you and I had so much anger and resentment. And I said, no, I want the whole truth. And then she said to me, well, your stepmother was your live-in nanny. And your father had been having an affair with her since she moved in. 
And I looked at her and I said, my stepmom? And she said, yes. Your father had an affair with your nanny, left me for her, married her. She became your stepmom. In that moment, all of the anger, all of the confusion, all of the what the fuck was laid out. My mom was trying to protect me. My father was guilty. No one ever told me. The running jokes about how my parents never wanted a family played out karmically with me as the main character of the movie, with me acting out the storylines, acting out parts one, two, and three. In one moment, it made perfect sense why I was constantly chasing something that I never had modeled to me. My mother burrowed in her bedroom working on her thesis, ignoring me because she was trying to ignore her pain. And every time she typed out a page in her dissertation and every time she hit record on her teachables, she was getting closer and closer to her authentic truth. And farther and farther away from the cheated on, humiliated, washed up ex. The connection that I had with my dad was the only time I ever saw him in his truth. The eventual day where his third wife said to him, you know what? I just don't think we need to have Stephanie here anymore. He took me hands in his hands, shoulders around my shoulders, sobbing, beautifully blue eyes, pouring tears out, saying, I don't know what to do with you. I don't know how to do it. I'm so sorry. In that moment, I saw him in his human, the same way that I saw my mother in her human. And I actually realized people need to feel good, to do good, to love good. There's just no way around it. My mom eventually died February 3rd, 2012. And it's so funny because little did I know that six years from that date, my now fiance would get down on one knee and propose. I did not know that the following years after my mother's death, after uncovering layers of identity, after uncovering the roots of my addiction, after uncovering my father's fatal flaw, and realizing, oh, life can feel good again. Life is good. People are inherently good. They just sometimes lose their way. I got sober in 2016. I welcomed my second son in 2019. My fiance and I will have been together for six years. The Good Love Company will have been birthed for six years. And I want to really take a moment and let everything sink in because there's so much more to this story. There's so much more to the rest 
but I want to leave it for now because I think that starting with where I came from, the weaves of identity, the parental role models, the watching of love dissolve has been so crucial and influential. When we return for part two of my story, we're going to talk about the guys that I mentioned. We're going to talk about what happened after my mom died, the spiral I went through, the promiscuity levels I went through, the darkest nights of my addiction, the time I almost became a sex worker, the threesome stories, and what happened between my mom dying on February 3rd, 2012, and getting engaged to the love of my life on February 3rd, 2018. So I hope that you are on the edge of your seat. I hope that you thoroughly enjoyed this. Next week, I'm going to be talking part two of my story. So hold on to your hats, because if you thought that was wild, (laughs) stay tuned. This has been another episode of So Good, and I'm so glad you guys are here. Bye. All right, lovebirds, there you have it. I hope that you thoroughly enjoyed that little pocket of time we spent together. It means the world to me. If this episode landed, if you felt like you got some mic drops, I'd love to know in the comments. Feel free to leave a five-star review as well. That always feels good. And if you know anyone who would benefit from listening to this, send her my way. Today's episode was so good, and I'll see you next time. I'm living that high.